Hello, and welcome to this program on the future of federally qualified health center leadership. My name is Julie Rosen, and I am the leader of Whitkeefer's not-for-profit practice. And I just appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedules today to listen to what I think will be a really important and fruitful discussion on federally qualified health centers. So just as background, for more than 50 years, federally qualified health centers have delivered affordable, accessible, quality, and value-based primary care to millions of Americans, regardless of their ability to pay. There are nearly 1,400 federally qualified health centers in the United States. The impact of federally qualified health centers is very significant. According to the Health Resources and Services Administration, one in 11 people in the United States rely on FQHCs for care. Of the 28 million people that are served nationally by FQHCs, that includes one in nine children, one in five rural residents, one in three people living in poverty, and more than 400,000 veterans. And between 2000 and 2018, the number of patients served by FQHCs has increased about 200%, which shows you the need. This session features two experienced FQHC leaders who will share their insights. So I want to introduce them to you. First is Charles Anderson, MD, MPH, MBA. He is the president and CEO of the Dimmick Center in Boston. This is the center that is nationally recognized as the model for the delivery of comprehensive health and human services in Boston. Dimmick provides high quality care to Boston's underserved neighborhoods, serving more than 19,000 people annually. And Charles has served in a wide variety of roles over the past 25 years in the Boston area healthcare community. And second, Lou Brady, MBA, has been the CEO of the Family Health Center in Worcester since 2019. Since 1999, Lou has been on a mission to ensure access to healthcare for everyone. With over 20 years of community health center services, his prior roles include serving as the COO for Cornell Scott Health Center in New Haven, Connecticut, Executive Director for Geiger Gibson Community Health Center in Boston, and Site Director for the Community Health Center in Meriden, Connecticut. Mr. Brady's Community Health Center experience began as COO for the Lowell Community Health Center in Lowell. So, Charles, Lou, welcome. Looking forward to the discussion. Um, we're just going to jump right in. So, let's start with Charles. What factors and circumstances have led to FQHCs becoming a critical part of the United States healthcare infrastructure? And what kinds of leadership challenges have changed recently? First of all, I really appreciate the opportunity to share and to, and to talk about something that I'm incredibly passionate about. And I think what's really important when we think about this, quite honestly, Julie, is we think about the genesis. Because when you ask about how is it that the, you know, 1,400 community health centers operating out of, you know, 13,000 sites across the country has become such an important part of the healthcare ecosystem. We have to remember that this started in, in the middle of the civil rights movement, where there was a real push to try to figure out how to provide care in a way that was going to address the range of determinants that really impacted someone's health experience. And the reality is that that project that started in the mid-60s, supported by then-Senator Kennedy, as well as uh, with uh, Dr. Jack Geiger and Dr. Hatch, you know, we really see that it works. To think that you can actually put a health center, and we talk about health center, we're talking about someplace where someone can receive a comprehensive set of integrated services 
in communities that often are challenged with access. When you do that, you can do that in a way that addresses the type of cultural humility and allows for the sort of listing and engagement. It works. And it's become part of an important element of us battling things like COVID and HIV and all of these other things, because we're in communities building the type of relationships, developing the type of trust that allows us to really bridge those access gaps. It's been an amazing solution to a problem that was identified in the mid-60s. That's awesome. Thanks, Charles. Lou, I'd love your perspective on this as well. We know that there have been interventions throughout uh, history where well-intentioned people seek to provide support and help. We know of the doctor who, uh, Albert Schweitzer, who would go into Africa with the hospital ships to provide care. However, when the ships disappeared, the care disappeared. What community health center leaders recognize is for this to be lasting and sustainable and effective, it had to be of, by, and for the people. Uh, nothing that can happen to us without us at the table. And recognizing that it had to be more than about shots and medications. It had to be about the things that actually made people ill, going after the social determinants of health, recognizing that if people didn't have employment or hope or a sense of agency, that the cycle of illness would just continue. And so community health centers became not just a place of access, but a place of empowerment for the neighborhoods. It really was a place of employment where a young kid of color could come in and see professionals who looked like them, who were able to achieve and go up higher. And that inspires them to say, well, maybe I could be a doctor or an administrator. It creates opportunities for income flowing into the neighborhoods where we're, where we're serving. It creates a place of trusted conversation where our board, which by law is majority consumer, say, this is what our neighborhood needs. And creating that sense of empowerment and upward trajectory is as healing as a vaccination, is as healing as uh, the medical care that, that people achieve at our health center. That's really important. Thanks, Lou. But to turn and from the kind of from the general to the more specific and talk about what you have both experienced in the last 18 months with COVID and how did your, and I'm going to ask this question separately around COVID and, and social determinants and racial inequity, but in terms of COVID, if you could talk about how your organization responded to the pandemic, how you serve your community from distributing vaccines to other initiatives. So at this time, I think I'll start with Lou and then turn to Charles. Well, March 2020 marked the first year anniversary of my role as CEO of the health center and uh, couldn't have foreseen this coming in the door, but it was an opportunity for us to really shine. At the moment that the pandemic hit, we were frankly frightened. We weren't sure how we were going to, to navigate all of this. Health centers have operated on very thin margins for a very long time, but we find a way because we have people who depend on us. Mm-hmm. When the pandemic hit, number one, we needed to ensure that our patients and our staff were safe. So we did all the things that were important in terms of shutting down the numbers of people coming through the system, 
ensuring that as many people who could work from home could work from home and providing that layer of protection, giving people information. And then we thought about doing the things that we could do when at the time that we could do it. Early on, it was testing, standing up testing and getting that going as quickly as possible and breaking down all the barriers. We opened up to all comers and we were pretty good about what we had accomplished. And it was a few weeks when we heard a news story about a Vietnamese couple that had uh, passed away from COVID. And we asked ourselves the question, gee, are these patients of ours? And did they come in and get any testing? When we pulled the string, we found out that while they had been patients of ours, they hadn't been in for testing. And while we had felt very proud about our ability to stand up testing and get and take all comers, we realized it wasn't enough to open the doors. And so we ran the data and looked at our systems and realized we had three ethnic enclaves that weren't engaging us for whatever reason. And so we recognized our responsibility to step into those communities and to engage with other trusted partners and to encourage those communities to get tested, to come in and, and to get what they need. Since then, we've been blessed with the vaccinations and we have been vaccinating people as rapidly as we can, really opening up all the stops and in between making sure that we're delivering care in whatever ways that we can deliver care, standing up telehealth in a, in a very short period of time so that even people from their homes could get the care that they need. The pandemic did not change the fact that people struggle with diabetes and other chronic conditions that must be managed in order for them to achieve great health. So while it's been a scary time, I'm very proud of how we stood up and recognized our unique role in the front lines of this pandemic. Mm -hmm. Thanks, though. It's great. Mm -hmm. Thanks, though. It's great. That's really moving. Charles, talk about Dimmick. Yeah, you know, I'd say similarly, you know, I, I would focus on the vaccination side of it because, again, absolutely, we had to stand up testing. We had to do contact tracing. Uh, on our campus, we also have early child education programming. So Head Start, Early Head Start, child care. So we have services on our campus that really span those things in the health center as well as those things that really touch early child ed. And we also have a full suite of substance use disorder programming that includes our detox, clinical stabilization, all the way through to our outpatient service and, and residential services. At any given night, we can have as many as 200 people sleeping on our campus. So one of the things that we had to do immediately in response to this was figure out how to create this kind of spacing and create a safe environment for individuals. So Unfortunately, we did have to scale back our census in places like the detox, which was really a challenge early on. We then found that there was an opportunity to expand into areas where we would be able to serve those who are COVID positive, as well as still needing to be detoxed. So we utilized some of the space on our you know, nine acre campus and nine buildings to create the sort of unique opportunities and fill those gaps, which quite honestly is a big part of the community health center story. Um, I've had the opportunity to work across a range of different parts of healthcare in Boston, for example, it's a little harder for some of the bigger institutions to be as nimble. And I was very impressed with our ability to do that. I think on the vaccine side, it's been really a, a challenging story and it continues to be a challenging one where we've had to very quickly build a vaccination clinic, right? literally build a clinic on campus. 
And I think as, as Lou discussed, you know, we're not in a situation where we're operating on, you know, <laughs> significant margins. So you're moving people around, you're trying to do the right things for the community, which is what we do and which is what we're called to do and have, have always been called to do and managed to do that very successfully. You know, that said, what we also found during that same period was very similar to Lou. We started to get a sense of who's coming in and who's not coming in. We realized there were certain critical gaps. And part of what we found was that the information that was being delivered was important, but more important was the messenger. So we built a whole process whereby we utilize people in the community. And for us, we're blessed because as being the largest employer in Roxbury, got 550 plus people who actually, most of whom live in the community, that we're able to make part of our internal street team in this process. And we actually allowed them to start telling their own stories. So it was one thing to hear Dr. Anderson talk about the vaccine and how it works and the virus. It was very different when we allowed individuals in the community to tell their story about why this vaccine was important to them. And we started recording those and reutilizing social media and other sorts of outlets really pretty successfully got to over 90% vaccination rate on our campus. And I alluded to the fact that we're the largest employer in Roxbury. So these are also individuals who went back into the communities and helped to communicate that message. So we really were quite nimble in thinking through how we actually marry the right message with the right messenger and leveraging the trusted relationship that we have. But again, this is fundamental and, and it's part of the core of who we are as community health centers. And the role that we play. And, and if you remember part of what happened in this process, you know, Lou, you remember this, that there was a time where, you know, vaccine got moved from the hospitals to the community health centers because we, they knew that we were the right vehicles to make sure these shots got into arms, especially in communities that were being so significantly impacted by this. That's so, that's so, Lou, I just wanted to give you an, a chance to talk about how you have been able to get shots in arms in your community. That's a great story, Charles. And I think, you know, some good messaging for other federally qualified health centers. You know, Charles, as you say, the, the secret sauce is the trust. We have the trusted relationships. We have the faces that they recognize. We're in the places that our neighbors are in. And as you're well aware of, there is reason for distrust within some of our communities for some of the historical injustice that's happened around vaccinations, medications, things done you know, without consent and being able to step out and share from trusted individuals our stories of we're taking this and we personally endorse this. We co-sign this effort, bringing forward the information in ways that clearly identify we're not in this for selling a vaccine or generating anything other than we are your neighbor, we care about you, we need you to be safe. We're taking this, we want you to take this. And so I, I applaud you and the work that you folks have done, not just the leaders as your doctors and yourselves step forward and are public examples of endorsement. In some respects, that frontline front desk clerk is even more impactful because they have people in their church who look to them, hey, you work at Demick? you get the shot? I heard this, that, and the other thing. So yeah, man, I got the shot. And this is why you want to get it too. So you know, I'd say kudos. Similarly, you know, within our communities, we have worked very hard to connect with people based on the trusted relationships that we've had and to make it, frankly, easy to get the vaccine too. So reducing the barriers, meeting people where they're at, working with other partners 
critical approach to this. Thanks, both of you. So let's turn to equity. Let's talk about what each of your health centers has done in the wake of George Floyd and some of the racial unrest in this country. Again, drawing on the themes of being a trusted partner in the community. So, Charles, I'll start with you. Yeah, say so with regards to equity, social justice, racial equity, you know, these are themes that have been around the health centers since their inception. And you got to remember, this is a movement that emerged out of the civil rights movement. And I'll, I talk to my team very often about the fact that it seems like we are uh, have another 1965 moment here. Because in the wake of all the unrest and all the wake, in the wake of just these highly visible, just acts of injustice, uh, these acts of violence against black and brown lives, uh, we've actually been able to really double down in our thinking and more so our action when it comes to recognizing the integral role that we play in creating not only an environment that is uh, providing equal access, so to speak, but an environment that's actually really focused on what equitable access looks like. And the difference there being, it's not just about providing the same vaccine, for example, it's providing different messaging around the vaccine to allow for equitable access to that vaccine. So we talked a little about the opportunity that we uh, took or the role that we took in terms of allowing for a different type of communication around that vaccine. But we're also looking at that through all of our programming. We're looking at this now very carefully with what we're doing in our substance use disorder world. One of the things that we've seen, unfortunately, during the pandemic is the rate of death among Black men in the Commonwealth increased by almost 70%. So we're actually looking very carefully with our partners about the role that criminalization of what was then drug addiction has impacted the way that individuals of color view themselves as dealing with substance use disorder and not feeling that they're part of that same diagnosis and that same definition. So we're actually working very closely with our partner organizations in the community to try to really make sure that we're positioning our services in a way that express cultural humility and really doubling down, not just assuming that we, just because of our trusted relationships and the makeup of who we are, that that's enough. But we're actually really reaching out, engaging and listening and learning and using that, those learnings to really re-engineer many parts of our programming to make sure that people see that it's not just about the signs on the lawn, but it's really about the way that we are making sure that the environment is addressing the specific needs in a way that only we can do because of the fact that we are listening and trying to understand exactly what this needs to look like to provide an equitable experience. Perfect. Thank you, Charles. Lou? We have had several places where we've addressed this. You know, one of the, the early places was internally having the conversations about equity and justice. You know, we have a very diverse team. We have employees who come from 55 different uh, ethnic enclaves, so to speak. It was important to put on the table the issues and to talk about it quite openly. We all have our advice and we all have our perspectives. We needed to talk about it and bring it out into the, to the light. You can't heal what you, what you don't reveal. So we spent a, a great deal of time talking about that. Our team put out messages to the community, really identifying our commitment to social justice. Early on, myself and my board chair put out a statement 
to the uh, to the Worcester community, really identifying our longstanding commitment to this work and our commitment to this work and the everyday things that we do, really tying this together for our staff, letting them know that it's as important to answer the phone and to treat people with respect because this is tied back to the very DNA of our existence, that no matter who you are, no matter what you have in your pocket, no matter the color of your skin or the zip code that you're born in, you're deserving of the same respect as anyone else. It was also important for us to be at the other tables that where the conversations were happening in Worcester, at the at City Hall, and in areas where there was talk of vaccine distribution or a testing and treatment, because we wanted to ensure that we're not just a center for equity and justice, but that we're lending our, our voice and our perspective and our moral energy to those conversations at all the tables where there can be an impact on our communities. Thank you, Lou. What do you think, just to throwing in this question here, what do you think the biggest misperception? If you had a group of hospital leaders sitting here, what is the biggest misperception about FQHCs? And what would you say both to public leaders and hospital leaders about what kind of message would you want to impart about the work that you do? Charles, starting with you. For me, the biggest misperception, especially in the Boston market, is that quality healthcare can only happen at the big hospitals. That if you really want quality care, it's got to be at some of the big hospital organizations. And I think that's a, a huge misperception, especially when we realize that a big part of what is quality care is what happens through primary care. It's not about how people are treated in hospitals. It's about keeping people out of hospitals. And I think the federally qualified health centers have been an incredibly powerful vehicle in doing just that. When you look at everything from management of diabetes to management of hypertension, community health centers outperform national numbers significantly. And I think that's one of these huge misperceptions. When you really, really start to look at what's happening, you got to remember that a big part of why we exist, a big part of our mandate is about how we actually drive quality outcomes. And we're measured by that. You know, we have an engine that allows us to take what are these you know, really patient-centered medical homes that we've built and to coordinate care in such a way that saves the system money and improves outcomes and provides great quality that exceeds, I think, what is the typical perception, at least in the uh, land of the giants in places like Boston uh, and many of the institutions that I spend a lot of my time in. Not that those institutions aren't important, but I think acknowledging the critical role that we play, especially in communities where quite honestly, you know, in our impoverished communities, we are providing primary care to one out of three people. So we're a critical part of the system in driving amazing outcomes. I absolutely endorse that. We are not the poor person's clinic where you walk in and you see the, the lime green couch with the stuffing coming out. We really are modern institutions delivering high quality, innovative care we were a patient-centered medical home before patient-centered medical home was a thing. That's where we were years ago and have continued to deliver that. We have adopted and extended the latest in technology, especially in the areas of uh, population health and quality, uh, thinking about how we manage the space between the visits, 
thinking about how we integrate here. Dermic is renowned for their integrated behavioral health model. We have a similar model. We are so cutting edge that many of us are hosting residency programs, teaching the next generation of providers how to deliver high quality care. And in those instances where I've had opportunity to tour hospital executives through a health center, they are blown away because their perception is that we are sort of the slow, poor cousin. And in any race for patient quality, we'd be on the podium every time. And I would love just to stay on this theme for a minute to first turn to Charles and then to Lou. I loved your story, Lou, about the Vietnamese couple, even though that was a bad story. I'd love for you to just kind of encapsulate, you know, kind of how you deliver the social determinants of health. If you could use a great example for us, for the audience, to really talk about how your health center brings all of that together in a story. I think I, I need to take a beat and pull that forward. Let me, for instance, talk about uh, healthcare for the homeless program. Okay. Uh, we have taken on this beautiful program focused on the healthcare of the homeless. And we've had a provider who's been under the bridges working with people who has been in the soup kitchens, in the shelters, providing that direct care. And they seek him out because they recognize that he is a trusted provider. In one instance, this doctor, Dr. Eric Garcia, was seeing patients at a local soup kitchen and was providing care all afternoon long. And at the end of his session, he went to retrieve his backpack so he could finish his notes and finish up his day. And he noted that his backpack had disappeared. He was upset because it was his favorite backpack and it had his laptop in it and a number of things. And he felt somewhat disappointed that after delivering such care, he would be taken advantage in this kind of a way. But he recovered and moved along. It was uh, a couple of days later that he went to a game at our local Red Sox polar park, the Blue Sox were playing. And he spotted that person with the backpack. And he went up to that person and said, uh, remember me, I'm Dr. Garcia. He said, yes. And said, that's my backpack. And the guy said, yes. And he realized that the guy was just looking for something to carry his belongings. And so Eric took the belongings out, took out the laptop, took out his other pieces and gave this gentleman uh, his favorite backpack. And this gentleman is going to continue to get care as a way to get through his day. Now, I think that's recognizing that the healthcare was more than the work that he did with that person in the soup kitchen on that particular day. It also was being able to get that person what he needed in the moment. And that was a backpack. Wonderful story. Yeah, you know, there are, there are so many stories, Julie. I mean, we could probably do a whole separate segment. Um, and it'd be great to even get some of our people on the front lines to tell yeah. those stories as well. And, you know, one of the things I've had the opportunity to do over the it's almost half a, yeah, been a half a year now as I've sat in the seat is, is to hear the stories from our front lines as well as from many of our patients as they come off and on campus. And there's a couple common themes, but one of the stories to me that was, was incredibly impactful 
was uh, one of the gentlemen who currently works at the Demick Center. And his story of landing on our doorsteps really broken through our detox. And uh, he landed there at the detox. And over time, he, he realized once he went through that 14-day period and then uh, got into a clinical stabilization and then got involved with this residential program, is as the fog lifted, he started to really see the beauty in his, in his child's eyes that he'd not seen. And the important part of that story for me was that we really, a lot of what we do is we catch people at that tipping point in their lives. And so there's many things that haven't had the opportunity to raise to, to get to the level of priority. And in many cases, they didn't even see themselves and have that vision of what a healthy life would look like. And when I say healthy life, we're not just talking about the traditional things of health, but a healthy life that leads you to have a healthy relationship with your child. And this gentleman, Eric, went on to uh, not only complete the program, but uh, we were able to help him get a job initially with UPS, allow him to be gainfully employed, allow him to be reunited with his family, reunited with his child, who actually also received services on our campus because we also provide educational programming. So here's a gentleman who, you know, went from being completely broken to now being able to access those things that allowed his family to have educational opportunities, allow him to be gainfully employed, and then actually move his family from shelter into permanent housing. That's the sort of thing that happens every day on our campus, which is uh, such a testament to the type of work that we do, not just as the Demick Center, but as a coordinated network of partners that also includes our other health center partners, but even our coordinated network of contributors, corporations, foundations, and others that are part of this vital work. So, you know, this opportunity to take someone from being completely broken to getting them into housing, to get them be gainfully employed, and now set a trajectory for their child, that is really about addressing those social determinants. And when you think about it, just pause for a second. And I know I'm kind of, you know, pushing on things when it comes to our tertiary care hospital system or that part of our healthcare system. Federally qualified health centers are really the only place where this happens and can happen. And it's a really important role that we play that we take very seriously. And there's story after story about how we're meeting needs in terms of housing security, workforce development, food insecurity. All those things are happening every day on our campus. That's fabulous. That's fabulous. I'd love to hear from each of you, maybe now starting with Charles and then going to those. So there's a lot of federal money coming into federally qualified health centers now from the federal government. What do you see as the future? You know, even two to three years down the road, how will each of your health centers change over time with the federal money coming in, with partnerships changing, you know, with population health expanding? You know, talk from each of your perspectives about what it's going to look like two to three years from now. My initial reaction was, I wish I could just take everybody to Disney World <laughs> because they, they, they were working so hard, <laughs> you know, throughout through this time period. But, but understanding that wouldn't work, <laughs> you know, a lot of it, quite honestly, is going to allow us to really invest strategically in those tools that, in my mind, are going to really take the business of what we do to a whole new level. And, and what do I mean by that? In what we do, there's a lot of data very often. 
But converting that data into actionable information is really what really good system investments are going to allow us to do. To get to that point where we can actually look at the performance of care across the continuum that engages a range of partners on and off campus to give us that full view of what's happening for that patient, for that family, for that individual in, and in that community is going to allow us to take the nimble engine that we already have and really start to address those things in very unique and special ways. There's some workforce investments that we're going to be able to make that are going to be critical. We know there's big gaps in mental health and we're going to have to rethink a lot of how we do mental health. So we think about the investments in telemedicine, the investments in not only the technology of it, but starting to put up those experiments that allow us to really, really understand how best to utilize this tool to really meet the needs of the communities that we serve. So, you know, I see these emerging centers of excellence funded by the feds and, and even some of these public-private partnerships that are going to allow us to really get to what I call, you know, federally qualified health center 2.0. Right? Mm-hmm. This is going to be, a, I think, a real rebirth. It's taking this 1965 moment and we're going to look back, you know, 50 years from now and we're going to see what happened with the sort of investments that we've been able to make combined with the amazing people that get up and do this work every day and being able to expand those teams and expand our infrastructure in ways that are going to really make a huge difference uh, going forward. That's really exciting. Well, yeah, I, I agree with my uh, colleague. You know, we are moving two powerful levers in the next couple of years and that technology and its teamwork. You know, on the technology side, there's the data. As he says, you know, Amazon knows what I want next. Netflix knows what to recommend. We will have that ability to see and be proactive in our approach, predictive in our approach, personalized in our approach, and connect people to what they need before they even know it. They don't have to call us. We'll be calling them. The other thing is the technology connects us in many different ways, and we'll be able to see the data in between the visits, connecting what's happening with the patients and their wearables with what we know about what our plan of care is for that. We'll be able to connect our workforce. One of the great things about this pandemic is it taught us the rules can shift. I have a team that is distributed across the U.S. I have a data analyst who lives in Ottawa, Canada. My uh, CIO lives in Ohio. My COO or my former CEO is in uh, Rhode Island. And we have been able to work together because of the technology. So that really enhanced our teamwork. And it's allowed us to access a level of talent and uh, capacity that we've not have been able to do you know, within our own little uh, silo. And so that technology, I think, continues to grow and evolve and connect us and allow us to leverage. But the real thing here is the teamwork. And it's recognizing we can't do it ourselves. We have to rely on partners. And you look at what Jack Geiger and Don Hatch and Tom Gibson did in Mount Bayou, Mississippi. They created not just a health center, but they had the food cooperative and they had a training center and they had all the pieces that were relevant to the population, to helping that population identify their best path forward. 
And I think that that's what's happening within our marketplace. Health centers will be working with behavioral health entities, with soup kitchens, with uh, homeless shelters, through the technology that allows us to communicate and connect, no matter what door the client comes in, that person comes in, we know that we're gonna be able to work together to get them to their highest and best place. It's a very exciting moment. It's a 1965 moment. And it's also, when did we we launch to the moon? 1968, it's also that moment as well, where the realm of possibility is just accelerating. That's wonderful. Okay, Lou, so just to pick up on something you said earlier about teamwork and your infrastructure, you know, Woodkeeper recruits exceptional leaders for, for health systems across the country. So where's the next generation of health center leaders coming from? And what are, what would you say are the two to three most important qualities you would be looking for in your next FQHC leaders? Well, it's helpful to have experience of FQHC and an appreciation of how we've done things. The outsider with that passion for the mission, with those outside uh, experiences can really have success in this realm because they can look at and appreciate what's been in place and how things have come together, but they can also bring to the table what happens in other industries and innovative approaches and create that, breaking up the soil and create that innovation that that allows it to, to really grow. The skills that are important to an FQHC leader, I think one that I've really discovered over the last year is a sense of humility and a willingness to make the hard decisions. The hardest decisions are around people because we come into uh, these spaces, we build relationships with people, we grow to adore them, but you don't always go with the people that you have. You need to figure out what is it that you need and then make the choices that get you there. And while it can feel challenging in the moment, you ultimately deliver for the people who really matter, and that's the patients in the community and the big stakeholders. So that willingness to make those hard decisions. I think a second critical skill is an ability to learn and adapt quickly because this thing is changing uh, and and changing rapidly. We're going to need to have people who facile, who are agile, who can think that way. And then I think lastly, it's having skill around relationship because it's increasingly identifying the partners who can help you on your way and figuring out how do your admissions align and being able to uh, engage them to help with that work. So those, I think, are the, are the most critical of the skills or three of the critical skills. Echo all of that. But let me add this other perspective because uh, I am one of those outsiders. Right. So new to the federally qualified health center world. And of course, known the Demick Center for most of the 30 years I've been in Boston. But that said, this is my first real internal look at what really drives the type of results that always know the Demick Center to be able to deliver on. And what's fascinating to me, quite honestly, is all the things that Lou described are exactly the same things that I would look for in a private equity context when I was looking for talented leaders uh, for our assets. So all of those things that really just define really strong leaders is really what we're about. 
I think the distinction that Lou made at the end was critical though, because you often find leaders who are really, really great in big Fortune 500 companies where everything is there and they're used to the infrastructure. The difference here is you have to be able to be nimble. You do have to be able to do quite a bit with uh, your ingenuity and more importantly, understand that you've got to do that through people. So this high EQ component is really, really critical to success in terms of leadership in, in this environment because you're interacting with people across entire spectrums. I'm in you know, the Bromley Heath projects and then I'm actually spending time at big corporations and foundations. And you've got to be able to work across all of those, that range of people and you know, all the things that people bring to the table in terms of their own expectations. You've got to be able to manage across that. You've got to be an incredible listener. You know, one of the models that I share with the team all the time is that, you know, it's all about the more we listen, the more we learn, the more we learn, the more we grow, the more we grow, the better we are. And you've got to be able to really live that. So, you know, that element of humility is really a critical part of this. But I'd say on the surface, if I was working with you on a search, I would really say, look, let's start with those individuals who we just are able to check boxes in terms of being really strong leaders and really have that acumen and have that temperament that allows you to feel comfortable that these are individuals that you could put in almost any environment, in any type of business, and they'd be able to work with people to get things done. Because that's really, at the end of the day, what we do. I tell people all the time, I'm overhead, <laughs> right? Uh, the real work happens. I think you're more than overhead. But okay. <laughs> I'm expensive overhead is what you say. <laughs> no, but, but, at the end of the, but at the end of the day, I mean, I think Lou would agree. I mean, we, we get what's done through people. I've got to be able to engage with the 550 plus employees that we have who have to see me as someone who's approachable and humble and understands uh, what it is that we're here to do. And at the same time, I've got to be able to keep my board focused on the things that are important and strategically engaged. So there's a range of what we need to do as health center leaders, which I will say is not too different than what I had leaders do in uh, private equity context and even myself as an operator of a, of a you know, very large, rapidly growing health and wellness private equity-backed company. That's a great place to wrap up. I am so touched by this webinar. I'm so grateful that I placed both of you. I think you're both incredibly humble, smart, strategic leaders. The health centers are so lucky. Family Health Center at Worcester, the Denmark Center, so lucky to have each of you. And, you know, I appreciate your time. FQHCs are important partners. And as you said, Charles, we are in a 1965 moment or 1968 moment. And, you know, I'm going to be very excited to see what the future brings. So thank you both. Thank you, Julie. Thank you, Julie. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. We invite you to visit wikifer.com to learn more about our expertise in leadership and view our open searches. You can follow Wikifer on our socials, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Wikifer. Wikifer makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only. Reliance on the information provided in this podcast is undertaken at your own risk. This podcast should not be considered professional advice. 
third-party materials or the contents of any third-party site referenced in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions, standards, or policies of McKeever. McKeever assumes no responsibility or liability for the accuracy or completeness of the content contained in third-party materials or on third-party sites referenced in this podcast or the compliance with applicable laws of such materials and or links referenced herein. Kiefer makes no warranty that this podcast, or the server that makes it available, is free of viruses, worms, or other elements or codes that manifest contaminating or destructive properties. Kiefer expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, or inability to use this podcast for the information presented in this podcast.